0: Hi everyone this is Kevin Sykes bringing you another story from the american frontier at 1001 stories from the old west here you'll find stories about lawkeepers and lawbreakers indian fighters prospectors newspapermen and others written often by the men who lived during those times and others who wrote about it later it was a wild time in what congressman davy crockett called this britches buston country and an important time in american history We hope you enjoy tonight's story. A fighter of fighters and a soldier of soldiers, George Armstrong Custer, old curly to his men, the white chief with the yellow hair, or more briefly, long hair to the Indians, from Bull Run to Appomattox, his career was fairly meteoric. Second Lieutenant in the Army of the Potomac at 21, fresh from West Point. A Brigadier General at 23, a major general at 24, and a commander of the 3rd Cavalry Division, which in the six months preceding the downfall of the Confederacy, had taken 111 guns, 65 battle flags, and over 10,000 prisoners of war, without losing a flag or gun, and without a failure to capture whatever it went for. Such was his record. I have heard my father tell of the impression made by the dashing young soldier whose spirited horse ran away on Pennsylvania Avenue at the Grand Review in Washington, in spite of the efforts of his rider, a peerless horseman, to restrain him. Custer's hat fell off, his long yellow curls floated back in the wind, making a dashing and romantic picture. He was a man of superb physique and magnificent strength. I saw him when I was a boy, and I have never forgotten him. His devoted wife, in one of three charming books in which she is told the deathless romance of their married life on the frontier, relates how, on one occasion, riding by her side with his left arm, he lifted her out of the saddle high into the air, held her there for a moment or two, then gently replaced her on her horse. No fatigue was too great for him to surmount. No duty, however arduous, ever caused him to give back. Reams have been written about his unfortunate campaign upon the Little Bighorn, in which he went down to such awful destruction, but little is known of some of the exploits of his early career on the plains. After the war, more fortunate than most of the younger general officers who were forced to content themselves with captaincies or less, General Custer was appointed Lieutenant Colonel of the new 7th Regular Cavalry, a regiment which was born with him, lived with him and a large part of which died with him the officers of the regiment were a set of unusual men custer himself was allowed considerable voice in the selection of them and of such a body of officers had rarely been assembled in one command most of the troopers were not at first of the high grade to which they afterward attained the best men in the ranks at least at the close of the civil war had had enough of fighting They wanted to get back to civil life once more. Not frequently, it was only the inferior soldiers who could be induced to re-enlist from the volunteer into the regular regiments, which were being organized or reorganized. There were in the ranks, however, 11 of veterans who were soldiers from love as well as from habit. With these as a nucleus, Custer and his officers, a judicious weeding out and a rigorous course of discipline, soon gathered a body of troopers against which there were none finer in the service of the United States. Owing to the fact that the colonel, a distinguished general officer in the war, was on detached service commanding a department, the regiment was practically continuously under the command of Custer until his death in 1876. The duty that devolved upon it was protection of the settlers in Kansas, In the last half of the year, 1868, statistics, which do not pretend to be comprehensive, for they are only facts reported officially to the headquarters of the Department of the Missouri, show 157 people killed, 57 wounded, including 41 scalped, 14 women outraged and murdered, one man, four women, and 24 children taken into captivity, 1,627 horses, mules, and cattle stolen, 24 ranches or settlements destroyed, 11 stagecoaches attacked, and four wagon trains annihilated. This, with a total loss to the Indians of 11 killed and one wounded. Truly, there was a region of blood upon that frontier. Every man murdered was also frightfully and disgustingly mutilated. This record takes no account of soldiers who were killed. In one instance, ten troopers under Lieutenant Kidder of the 2nd Cavalry, with a message for Custer's command then in the field, were overtaken and slaughtered to a man after a desperate defense. When Custer came upon the scene of the battle, the bodies were so mutilated that it was impossible to tell one from the other. The only distinguishing mark upon any of them was a shirt neckband made of a material of a peculiar marking, which was yet a common article of apparel at that time. It was by this shirt collar that the body of Lieutenant Kidder was subsequently identified by his mother and taken east for burial. As usual, there was strife between the Indian agents and the army. There always has been and there always will be. The agents invariably declared that there was peace in the land and sought to embarrass the army in its efforts to protect the frontier. Popular indignation, however, at last forced the government to act, and the campaign was long and arduous during the latter part of the summer of 1868. The success of the soldiers was not pronounced at first. The extent of territory was great, the force available small, the Indians exceedingly mobile, and the troopers had as yet scarcely learned the rules of the game so that it was a matter of extreme difficulty to get at any considerable body of Indians and inflict a crushing blow. As we have seen, General Forsyth's command barely escaped annihilation at the Great Battle of the Arikari, also known as Beecher's Island. Host John Hagedorn did a great earlier reading from this particular battle. Matters dragged on, however, with nothing decisive happening until the summer and fall had slipped away and the winter was at hand. The Indians rarely did any fighting in the winter, it was difficult and dangerous for horsemen to move on the exposed prairies in the winter season, and hitherto fighting had been abandoned with the advent of the cold. The Indians, during the winter, naturally tended southward, seeking a less severe climate if it might be had, and from November to April had been considered a close season. General Sheridan, however, who had command of the department, determined to inaugurate a winter campaign in the hope that the Indians— who would naturally congregate in large villages and secluded spots sheltered by trees along the river banks might be rounded up and defeated decisively the force at his disposal for these projected operations consisted of 11 troops of the 7th cavalry four companies of infantry and the 19th kansas volunteer cavalry a regiment of settlers and old soldiers which had been organized from the campaign The expedition was under the command of Sheridan himself. The rendezvous was at Camp Supply in the Indian Territory, about 100 miles south of Fort Dodge, Kansas. No Indians, in any considerable body that is, had been seen by any of the scouts sent out, and no outrages were reported. It was evident that the hostiles were lying snugly concealed somewhere for the winter season. Sheridan determined to detach Custer and his regiment from the command and send them scouting farther southward, while with the rest of the force he himself would explore the country in other directions. Custer received his orders on the twenty second of November, late at night. Reveille was sounded at four o'clock on the twenty third. The thermometer was below zero. There was a foot of snow upon the ground, and it was coming down furiously when Custer reported to Sheridan that he was ready to move. What do you think of this? asked Sheridan, alluding to the weather. It's all right, answered Custer cheerfully. We can move. The Indians can't. There was a hasty breakfast, coffee and hardtack, each trooper standing by the head of his horse, and the column moved off. The undaunted band of the regiment, surely made up of the most heroic and hardy musicians that ever tooted horn or thumped sheepskin, in gallant style, played them out and into the terrible blizzard, then raging, with an old marching tune. No one can realize the force of a blizzard on the plains who has not experienced it. The guides almost immediately declared themselves unable to lead the regiment. Every cavalry officer in the field carries a pocket compass. Custer knew where he wanted to go. With his own compass to show the way, he led the regiment forward, the men stumbled on through the awful snow and hurricane until two o'clock when they were stopped on the bank of Wolf Creek, 15 miles from the starting point. First, caring for the exhausted horses, they made camp. And as the wagons came up, fires were soon burning, meals were prepared, and some of the effects of the deadly cold were dissipated. The next morning, November 24th, they marched down Wolf Creek. The snow had stopped falling but the temperature stood at seven degrees below zero. The 25th, they continued the march. Many another commander would have been stopped by the fearful weather, but Custer was known as a man who would press on as long as the mules could draw the wagons, and when they could not, he would abandon the wagons and live off the mules. He kept on. On the 26th, Thanksgiving Day, arriving at the north bank of the Canadian River, he dispatched his second-in-command, Major Elliot with three troops on a scouting expedition up the river, which he proposed to cross with the balance of his men. There was no Thanksgiving dinner awaiting them, and the remembrance of the holiday spent under happier circumstances aggravated their present condition. The river was frozen, but not sufficiently so to bear the regiment. They had to break through the ice and find a ford in the icy water, and it was after 11 o'clock in the morning before the whole command succeeded in passing to the south side. Scarcely had they done so when they noticed a horseman galloping at full speed toward them on the other side. As soon as he came near, they recognized him as Scout Corbin, one of Elliot's guides. He brought the startling news that Elliot had come upon a trail of an Indian war party, at least 150 strong and not 24 hours old, which led them to the south side of the river. The scout was given a fresh horse and ordered to return to Elliot, who was directed to follow the trail cautiously until eight o'clock at night, at which time he was to halt and wait for Custer, who would leave the wagon train and follow him immediately. Calling the officers to him, Custer briefly gave his orders for the advance. The wagon train was to be left under the care of an officer and 80 men. Each trooper was to take one day's rations of coffee and hardtack and 100 rounds of ammunition upon his person, together with a little forage for his horse, and the regiment was to push on at the highest possible speed to join Elliot. When it came to designate an officer to remain with the train, the detail fell upon a Captain Hamilton, whose turn it was to act as officer of the day in camp. This young man was the grandson of the great Alexander Hamilton. He demurred bitterly, to being left in the rear in command of the train under such circumstances. There was no help for it, however, until Custer finally informed him that if he could get anyone else to take his detail, he could go. It was discovered upon inquiry that one of the officers of the regiment had become almost helpless from snow blindness, the glare of the ice and snow being something terrible, especially upon the open prairies such as they were then traversing. This officer was entirely unfit for active campaigning, but such was his zeal to go forward that he concealed his ailment until Hamilton's scrutiny brought it forth. To him, therefore, was committed the charge of the wagon train, much against his wish, and Hamilton was allowed to go to the head of his troop. It had grown somewhat warmer during the day, the top crust of snow became soft, and the horses sank through it to their knees. There was no road or trail, of course, but the command advanced straight across the open prairie toward the point where Corbin had indicated that Elliot had picked up the trail. The several troops were successively placed in advance for the fighting and arduous labor of breaking up the road. There was every desire to spare the horses, but they were nevertheless urged to the last limit to overtake Elliot. Under such circumstances, it was problematical whether they would find him alive, for the Indians, who were believed to be in great force, might discover him, ambush him, attack him, and wipe him out, as Fetterman had been annihilated, or as Forsyth had been overwhelmed. During the afternoon, Custer and his command struck Elliott's trail, but it was not until nine o'clock at night when they overtook him. They found him encamped on the banks of a little stream and thoroughly concealed in the timber. With relief, the regiment halted, and taking advantage of the deep ravine through which the creek ran, they managed to build a few fires, which, being well screened, were invisible a short distance away. Over the fires, the men made coffee, which, with the hardtack, constituted their only meal since morning. A Thanksgiving dinner indeed. Elliot had followed the trail, which was still well defined until eight o'clock, and then had halted in accordance with the orders of Custer, and had waited for his commander. A hasty council was held, and some were for taking up the advance at once, but it was pointed out that the moon would rise in one hour, and by waiting, they would have the benefit of the moonlight in following the Indian Trail. Besides, the short rest would do the command good. Saddles were taken off, the horses were rubbed down, and sparingly fed from the scanty supply of forage. At ten, the march was once more resumed in this order. First of all, riding some distance ahead of the main body were two Osage Indian scouts. One of these was Little Beaver, who was chief of a small band of Indian auxiliaries which had volunteered for the campaign. Next to them came other Indians, several famous frontiersmen, California Joe and Scout Corbin, and a hideous half-Negro, half-Indian interpreter whose name was Romero, but whom the soldiers facetiously dubbed Romeo, because he was so ugly. Then, General Custer and his staff, and then some distance in the rear, the successive troops of the regiment in a column of fours. About three miles from their campaign place, Little Beaver came back to Custer in considerable agitation and declared that he smelled fire. Nobody else smelled anything, but at his insistence the command was halted, and he and one of his men went forward with Custer and one or two of the scouts until they had gone a mile from the halting place. Sure enough, after surmounting a little hill, they saw ahead of them, and some distance away, the embers of a fire. The advancing party halted. Little Beaver and the other Indians snaked their course over the ground, taking advantage of every cover to learn what they could. With beating hearts, the general and the others watched them, would they stumble upon the foemen then and there? They waited, concealed beneath the hillock, until Little Beaver returned to tell them that the fire had evidently been kindled by the boys guarding the herds of ponies during the day. And, at any rate, it had almost gone out. No one was there, and the way was safe for the present, although the main camp was probably not far distant. Orders were sent back to the regiment to advance, but to keep its present distance behind Custer and the scouts. The command proceeded with the utmost caution, with an excitement in their veins at the stealthy approach, with its possible consequences which made them almost insensible to the frightful cold. About half after twelve, on the morning of the twenty-seventh, Custer saw the leading Indian suddenly sink down behind a hill and waved his hand quickly. The whole party dismounted, and the commanding officer with one of his scouts crawled to the hill where the Indian lay. Whispering a word or two, Little Beaver pointed straight in front of him. Half a mile away, a huge black blotch was tremulously moving on the snow and the moonlight. Experienced eyes recognized a herd of ponies. Where the ponies were, there were the Indians also. Custer watched the scene for a moment. Upon the still air, the wind had died, and the night, though bitter cold, was intensely quiet. He heard the sound of a bell, evidently tied to the neck of the leader of the herd. Dogs barked, and as they waited, they marked the thin, shrill cry of a little child. It was an Indian camp beyond peradventure. Beyond it, among the bare and leafless trees... Gleamed in the moonlight the ice bound shores of the half frozen river, the Ouachita. The general, as tender hearted a man as ever lived, and as kindly for all his fights, tells us how strangely that infant's cry, heard on that bitter winter night, moved him, appealed to him. It filled his mind with the natural regret that war had to be waged and an attack delivered upon a camp in which there were women and children. But the stern necessities of the case permitted no other course. The band of Indians under his gaze was that of Black Kettle, head chief of the Cheyennes since the death of Roman Nose, one of the most ferocious and brutal of the Plains Indians. The blood of scores was upon his hands, and upon the hands of his followers as well. Torture, infamy, treachery, shame beyond estimation— had stained that band. Even then, in the camp, there were helpless captives, poor women whose fate cannot be described or dwelt upon. And here we'll take a brief break to hear a word from our sponsors. Welcome back, and now we'll hear more about Custer on the Washita. When Custer had satisfied himself at last, that he had found the camp for which he had been searching, which appeared to be a very large one from the number of lodges which they thought they could make out in the distance. Leaving the scouts to observe the Indians, he tramped back through the snow to the command, and by messengers summoned the officers about him. Taking off their sabers for the moment, so that their clanking would not betray them, the officers crept to the crest of the hill and made themselves as familiar with the situation as they could by such inspection. There, Custer gave them their final orders. The regiment was divided into four squadrons. Major Elliot, with three troops, G, H, and M, was ordered to circle cautiously to the left and get in the rear of the Indian camp. General Thompson, with troops B and F, were directed to make a long detour to the right, and join elliot captain myers with troop e and i was commanded to move a shorter distance to the right and take up a position on the left of thompson while custer himself with the four remaining troops captain hamilton commanding one squadron comprising troops a and c captain west another of troops d and k with the osages and scouts and 40 sharpshooters was to approach the village from the point where they stood Not a sound was to be made, not a shot fired, not a signal given. The attack would be delivered at dawn. When they heard the bugler sounding the charge in the still air of the morning, they were to rush in immediately. In order not to impede their movements, the men were directed to remove their overcoats and leave them in care of the guard in the rear before the attack was delivered. Then, After hearty handshakes and whispered salutations, the officers assembled their several squadrons and silently started out upon the long detours necessary to enable them to reach their designated positions. The Indian village was located in the valley of a small river in the Indian Territory, an affluent of the Canadian called the Washita. It was in a deep depression below the surrounding country and was well sheltered by trees on the banks of the stream here easily fordable by the time all preparations had been made in custer's own detachment it still wanted some four hours to dawn the troops with custer had nothing to do but wait where they were and a weary freezing wait it was so insistent was the general that there should be no noise that he refused to allow the men even to beat their breast to keep up circulation or to stamp their feet to ward off numbing cold. Conversation was forbidden. They were dealing with a warrior who was the most watchful of foemen, with men who could detect an enemy, as the Osage had the fire a mile away, seemingly by instinct. They must take every precaution. The men dismounted and stood uncomplainingly by the side of their horses. Some of them wrapped themselves in their overcoats, and attaching their bridle reins to their wrists, lay down on the ground and actually went to sleep. About an hour before dawn, Custer dispatched the last squadron under Captain Myers, who had but a short distance to go, and then, as the first pale grayness of the morning began to steal over the eastern hills and mingle with the moonlight, he gave orders to call the troops to attention. The first sergeants, went through the ranks and by a touch of the hand woke the sleeping men. Stiff and numb with the cold, they staggered to their feet, took off their overcoats, left them under the care of a small guard, and mounted their horses. Their sabers had been left behind, and they were armed with revolvers and Spencer carbines. The officers quickly formed up their troops and with whispered words placed themselves at the head. The troops were deployed in line, Hamilton's squadron to the right, west to the left. Cook's sharpshooters were about 40 yards in advance of the left, dismounting, their horses being left with the guard. Some distance in front of the rest rode Custer. Following him was his bugler. Next to the bugler was the indomitable regimental band. The orders were, in Hamilton's last words, Now men, keep cool, fire low, and not too rapidly. The Osages had been somewhat doubtful as to the issue of the attack. They had made medicine, war-painted themselves, and arrayed themselves for battle, but with a great deal of trepidation. They expected the white soldiers would be beaten, and they reasoned that in that case their allies would endeavor to purchase their own salvation by surrendering the Osages to the vengeance of their enemies they determined to take such a position as would enable them to be governed by circumstances in their movements, so they could either fight or fly. They knew the reverence with which the soldiers regarded their flag. Never having been in action with the white band, they concluded that the flag would be kept in a place of safety, and if they stood religiously close to the banner, they would be in a good position to attack or retreat as circumstances required. Consequently, they rallied on the flag, for once the red man's reasoning led him into trouble, for as it happened, and as was to be expected, the flag was in the thick of the fight, and, to give them credit, as they saw their mistake and saw no means of rectifying it, the Osages fought as bravely and as efficiently as the rest. The command went silently down the hill, making for the center of the valley and the trees where lay the Indian camp. The excitement of the situation was intense. Nobody knew just what he was about to encounter. No one could tell whether the other troops had succeeded in getting within the supporting distance or not, but Custer knew his officers and, in this instance, depended upon them. Nearer and nearer the line approached the village. Clearer and clearer came the light of the pale sky. Little hazy clouds of smoke floated above the teepees under the trees but aside from that, there was no evidence of life among them. However cautiously it was conducted, the advance of such a body of men over the snow made a great deal of noise. They had come so near the camp that they could not hope to remain undiscovered another moment. At the instant Custer was about to give the signal, a rifle shot was heard on the other side of the camp. At first, it was thought to be an accidental discharge from one of the attacking parties, it was afterward learned that the shot was fired by Black Kettle himself, who had heard the noise of the advancing troops, for every squadron had reached its appointed place, and practically at the same time they commenced their advance upon the devoted town. So soon as the crack of the rifle broke upon the still air, the bugle sounded the charge. With the first notes, Custer turned to the band. Each trumpeter had his trumpet to his lips, each drummer his drumsticks in the air. Play, he shouted. And for the first time in action, the stirring notes of the tune, now peculiar to the 7th Cavalry, as its battle music, Gary Owen, broke on the air. Three answering bugle calls rang out from the different squadrons on all sides of the village. The cavalry charged. The dismounted soldiers advanced on the run. They all cheered. The village was strung upon the banks of the creek and the troopers fell upon it like a storm. The Indians, completely surprised, nevertheless did not lose a moment. They poured out of the lodges and, seeking the shelter of the trees or standing knee-deep in the icy water of the river with the banks acting as rifle pits, returned the fire of the white men. A few of them succeeded in breaking away, but most of them had to fight where they were and right well they fought. Brave Captain Hamilton, who had sought the detail with such zeal, was shot from his horse and instantly killed. Captain Barnetts received a wound through the breast under his heart here and there others fell. Strict orders had been given to spare the women and children. Most of the women and children remained hidden in the tepees. others took part in the defence. The various troops scattered throughout the village, and the fighting was hand-to-hand of a most vigorous character. Captain Benteen galloped forward and approached by an Indian boy about 14 years of age on horseback. The boy was armed with a revolver. As the captain drew near, he called out to the lad that his life would be safe if he would throw away the weapon. Fearing he could not understand him, he made peace signs to him. For reply, the boy leveled his weapon and shot at the captain. The bullet missed him. The Indian fired a second time and the bullet cut through the sleeve of Benteen's coat. The captain was still making signs of amity and friendship when the boy fired a third time and hit his horse. As he raised the pistol to fire a fourth time, the officer was forced to shoot him dead. One Indian woman seized a little white boy a captive, and broke for the river. She got into hiding in some underbrush where she might have remained unmolested, but such was her malignity that she busied herself by taking pot shots at the galloping troops with her revolver. They captured her when her revolver was empty and then discovered that she had been fighting them in spite of a broken leg. The Indians rallied in certain places favorable for defense. In their desperation, 17 braves threw themselves into a little depression on the ground and refused to surrender, fighting until all were killed. In a ravine running from the river, 38 made a heroic defense until they were all shot. In all, 103 were killed, including Black Kettle, the chief. The furious fighting lasted one hour. The village was now in possession of the troops. A number of officers and men had been wounded, and a temporary hospital was established in the middle of the village. Details were sent through the lodges to rout out the women and children, and a roll call was ordered. Custer was dismayed to find that Major Elliot and 14 men, including Sergeant Major Kennedy and three corporals, were missing. Where they had gone to, no one at first could imagine. Finally, a trooper stated that a number of Indians had escaped in the gap between Elliot and Thompson, and that he had seen Elliot with a few troopers break away in pursuit of them. An order was given for a troop to search for them, but before it could get away, Indians were perceived in heavy force on the bluffs, directly in front of the command. Custer had succeeded in killing practically the whole of Black Kettle's band, and, as the Indians who had escaped had been forced to run for their lives naked as they came from the lodges, he could not understand the appearance, just out of range of his men, of this portentous and constantly increasing force arrayed in full war panoply. Inquiry among the captives disclosed the fact that the valley had been chosen as the winter headquarters for the principal bands of the Kiowa, Arapaho, Cheyenne dog soldiers, Comanches, and even a wandering band of Apaches. There were at least 2,000 warriors in this assemblage. At that moment, the men who had been guarding the overcoats and the lead horses came running in saying that they had been driven off by a heavy force of Indians. The situation was indeed critical. Something had to be done at once. Custer dismounted his men and threw them out in a half circle about the camp and prepared for battle. The Indians did not delay in delivering it. Led by Little Raven an Arapaho, and Satanta, a famous Kiowa, and Black Kettle's successor, Little Rock, they at once attacked. A fierce battle was on, and Custer's ammunition was running low. The troops were now fighting for their lives. They had not expected anything of this kind. Fortunately, at this critical junction, a four-mule wagon came dashing through the Indian line, the Indians, being occupied in fighting, did not observe it until it was right upon them. Driving the wagon was Major Bell, the quartermaster from the train, and with him was a small escort. He had loaded the wagon with ammunition and galloped toward the sound of the fighting. With the fresh supplies, therefore, the troops at last made a bold charge, which drove the Indians headlong down the valley during which Little Rock, striving to rally his braves, was killed. Custer now set fire to the lodges, totally destroying them and their contents. What to do with the ponies of the herd, which had been captured in spite of the efforts of the women to run off with them, was a problem. It was impossible under the circumstances to drive them back to the camp. To turn them loose would have allowed them to fall into the hands of other Indians for use in future warfare. They had to be shot. It was a most unpleasant and repulsive duty for the soldiers, but there was no alternative. The whole herd was slaughtered. It took an hour and a half to kill them, and those engaged in this work said that they had never done anything so harrowing and distressing. By this time, it was late in the afternoon, the Indians from the other villages finding they were pursued but a short distance, had reassembled and once more prepared for attack. It was necessary for Custer to retreat at once. He put every available man on horseback. Throughout skirmishing parties, the colors were brought up, the indefatigable band started playing, and the party advanced gaily up the valley toward the Indians. As he hoped and planned, they immediately reasoned that he would not advance with such confidence against such an overwhelming force unless he had been supported by heavy reinforcements to his command. After a short resistance, they broke and fled. It was night by this time, and Custer lost no time in getting out of the valley. The weather was still frightfully cold, and his men were without their overcoats, for they had, of course, not recovered them, and were almost perishing. They got back in safety, however, to Camp Supply, having accomplished the objective of their expedition in dealing a decisive blow to the Indians. More than that, they had shown the Indians, who trusted for immunity to the season, that winter and summer were alike for the American soldier. The Indian loss was 103 killed in the village, including Black Kettle, an unknown number believed to be large killed and wounded during the all-day fighting, including Little Rock, the capture of 53 women and children, 875 ponies, 1,123 buffalo robes and skins, the destruction of over 500 pounds of powder and 1,000 pounds of lead, 4,000 arrows, 700 pounds of tobacco, besides rifles, pistols, saddle bows, lariats, immense quantities of dried beef, and other winter provisions. In short, the complete destruction of the village and the annihilation of the band. The losses of the regiment in the engagement were one officer and 14 men missing, that would be Elliot and his party, one officer and five men killed, three officers and 11 men wounded, General Sheridan called the affair the most complete and satisfactory battle ever waged against the Indians to that time. Custer had marched through the blizzard and over the snow-clad plains to victory. His stealthy approach, the skill with which he had surrounded the village, the strength with which the attack had been delivered, and the battle which he had fought with the unexpected Indian force, the ruse by which he had extricated himself, and, last but not least, Bell's gallant dash with the ammunition wagon, were all given the highest praise, and well they merited it. One or two incidents of the battle are worthy of a special mention. When the troops obtained possession of the village, they found the dead body of a white woman. The fact that she still had some vestige of civilized clothing upon her, quite new, proved that she had been but recently captured. She had been shot dead by the Indians at the moment of the attack to prevent her rescue. And there was also the body of a little white child who had been killed by those who had him in charge, lest he should be returned to his family again. The Indian women, of course, were in great terror. They thought that they would be instantly put to death when they were routed from their tepees. Black Kettle's sister, who seemed to be the leading woman of the village, made a long oration to Custer, telling him that she was a good Indian, and that she had tried to restrain Black Kettle in his nefarious character, which was all a lie, of course. She wound up bringing the comeliest of the young Indian maidens to Custer, and after solemnly placing the hand of the girl in that of the general, mumbled some kind of a gibberish over the two. The general observed Romeo standing near with a broad grin upon his face, and asked him what she was doing. He was told that she was marrying him to the beauty of the tribe to propitiate him. The marriage did not stand. The fate of Elliot's detachment remained a mystery. His comrades hoped that he had escaped. But as the days passed, and as he did not return to the regiment, and as nothing was heard from him, they abandoned their hope in despair. This was not, by any means, the end of the winter campaigning. And some time after... Custer and his men, this time heavily reinforced, again marched up the valley of the Washita. A short distance from the place where Black Kettle's band had been annihilated, they found the remains of Elliot and his men. The evidence of the field, and what was afterward learned from the Indian captives, told the sad story. Pursuing the fleeing Indians, Elliot and his party suddenly ran into the midst of a horde of braves coming down the valley to help Black Kettle and the men who had engaged with Custer. To fly was impossible. They dismounted from their horses, formed themselves in a semicircle, a few feet in diameter, and stood back-to-back, as it were, and fought until they died. There was evidences of a terrible conflict all around them. Right dearly had they sold their lives. The last survivor of that gallant little band had been Sergeant Major Kennedy, the finest soldier in the regiment, He was not wounded, it appears, but had expended all his ammunition from both rifle and revolver. Being an officer, he wore a sword. Seeing him, as they supposed, helpless, the Indians resolved to take him alive for the purpose of torturing him. There was not a soldier who knew of the habits of the Indians who would not choose death to captivity at any time. The brave Kennedy stood alone in the midst of the bodies of his comrades, fronting death. Sword in hand. I like to think of the courage of that heroic man in the midst of that savage, ravaging assemblage. With wily treachery, the Indians made peace signs and walked toward him with hands outstretched, saying, How, how! Kennedy, who knew the true value of such proceedings, waited until the chief of the band approached him nearly, then thrust his sword upon him to the hilt into the Indians' breast. When they found Kennedy's body, he had been pierced by no less than twenty bullets. The other troopers had received one or two bullet wounds each. They were all stripped, scalped, and mutilated. There was a great outcry when this battle became known, and Custer was accused of slaughtering helpless, inoffensive, gentle Indians. Unmerited disdain was heaped upon him, but those who lived near enough to feel the effects of the Red Scourge realized that he had done for the settlers the best thing that could be done. People who knew, and his superior officers, not only sustained, but commended him. Custer, again, in command of a much larger force, surprised a more populous village later in this same winter. It was completely in his power. He could have wiped it from the face of the earth, although it contained a force of Indians nearly equal to his own. But he stayed his hand, and said he would spare the savages if they would deliver to him... Two wretched women, one a young bride, the other a young girl, whom they held in captivity and for whose deliverance the campaign had been undertaken. By masterly skill, Custer captured Satanta, the infamous, and held him until the captives were given up. With the expedition was the brother of one of the captives. Custer tells in his simple, terse manner with what feelings the whole army watched the poor woman brought into camp and how the boy, the last of his family, stood trembling by the general's side until he recognized in one of the wrecks of humanity which the Indians handed over the sister whom he was seeking. The red-headed cook, referred to above, was with the army again, and proved herself in her rude way an angel of mercy and tenderness to these, her wretched sisters. And that concludes our reading of Chapter 10 of Indian Fights and Fighters, The Battle of the Washita. Now for the special announcement. We will be taking a seasonal hiatus. That is, now that it's warmed up and the snow's gone, I'm gonna hit the trail. We're gonna be hiking and fishing and playing with the kids and finding some rugby games here and there. So I will not be recording anything probably until mid to late October. October. In the meantime, we will have episodes of Tales of the Texas Rangers, which I've mentioned before, filling in for 1001 Stories from the Old West. Those episodes, each and every one of them is worth listening to. So keep listening, keep those reviews coming, and I'll see you guys in October. Thanks for your support, and we'll be back. Bye now. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Stories from the Old West. If you enjoyed this episode, please do send us a review. This is your host, Kevin Sykes, speaking on behalf of the 1001 Stories Network. Take care, and we'll be back soon with a brand new story.